Are you ready? Ready to release internal pain? To find confidence, clarity, and direction for your future? To live a life of meaning, fulfillment, and contribution? To trust your intuition again, but something's been holding you back? You've come to the right place. Welcome. I'm Ian Hawkins, the host and founder of the Grief Code podcast. Together, let's heal your unresolved or unknown grief by unlocking your grief code. As you tune in to each episode, you will receive insight into your own grief, how to eliminate it and what to do next. Before we start, I have one request. If any new insights or awareness land with you during this episode, please send me an email at info at ianhawkinscoaching.com and let me know what you found. I know the power of this work and I love to hear the impact these conversations have. Okay, let's get into it. So um, we just want to chat about all things today. I'm sure that a lot of that will be football, but we also want to talk about your journey through football, but also the work you're doing now and also some of the massive challenges you've had. So probably just a good place to start is for those that don't know, you captained your country how many times in soccer, football? You know what? I don't know how many times I captained, but I uh, made 100 appearances. My mum says, yeah, but how many good ones? And (laughs) from that, I have no idea. Other than that stat, 118, but how many good ones? Actually, how many I captained? Fantastic. So I know you've got uh, a lot of flags and shirts there behind you, and um, each one no doubt has a story, and we won't have time to get through them all today. But maybe uh, let's start with one that just springs to mind as, as one that's sort of really impactful in your life. You mean the Diego Maradona one, or are you talking about my epilepsy? I mean, I'm sure we're going to get to uh, to all of it, but um, let's, yeah, which one would you like first? Let's pull out the big guns, mate. Let's start with uh, Diego. <laughs> the big Diego one. Honestly, I, when I walk around and I talk to people about all sorts of things, about football and about life, I always bring out this. It's the, uh, the Socceroos versus Argentina. I don't know whether you can see that. I'll move that. Uh, people on their phone may not be able to, but I can see it. No, no. But like, I basically pull this out because it's got the date, it's got the game, it's got the venue, it's got everything. See, every time you play for Australia, you get a cap. Only an A international. So if you play against AC Milan, uh, you don't get one. But if you play against the Solomon Islands, you do. So this is a little bit uh, special. Um, I talk about what it was like in the two weeks leading up to that particular the game, all the hype surrounding Madonna. It's almost like the other 10 didn't really matter. It was all about him. Every every commercial break went to was from a Maradona story. When they came back from the commercial break, it was about Maradona again. It was like, you're all kidding. What about us? We're in, hello, you're in our country now. What about us? No, media didn't want to know us at all. But yeah. I talk about, Hawk, I talk about the, um, the stress that I felt. Um, and I... You know, I'm no, I'm no genius, I'm no psychologist, psychiatrist, whatever you want to call it, but when, when you Google this stuff about... Uh, 
just uh, talk amongst yourselves while Wadey's picture comes back. Uh, the wonders of technology. So I'll do a little interlude, but so uh, Wadey was talking to me about this yesterday. And it's funny, we, we watch people in the public eye and we see how successful they are. And we don't really consider how much stress they're going through. And despite the fact that he's you know, playing for his country, uh, captaining his country, the anxiety and the self-doubt that creeps in to people at this level is astonishing. And it's also, I guess, for, for, for you and I, who may never get to have that um, opportunity, yeah, it's, it's probably comforting to know that they're human and that they go through all of these things as well. And uh, and so what Wadey was talking to me about yesterday was the stress in the lead up to that, the anxiety and him who, who, who never really rated himself that highly as a footballer. Even when he was coaching us, he, he talked about some of the players in our team um, that, that he's mind boggled at how skillful they were compared to his own ability. And then having to do this task of marking the great Maradona. Um, Wadey, I can hear you. Are you back there, mate? Can you hear me? I can. I can't see you, but I can hear you. you Maybe hear that's a better, better thing. Do you want me to? <laughs> do you want me to uh, see if I can uh, get my tech in here? I'll tell you what. I'll turn my video on again. Um, and to all those who are watching and listening, uh, my most humble apologies. But uh, that's I was just, um, I was just um, feeling yeah, feeling the yeah, way well, um, the stress you know that you experienced. Yeah, I was, I, I, it's, it sounds very industrious, but I, I Googled stress, anxiety, how to deal with it. And then I, I looked at my own story against Maradona and I thought, wow, what a connection that is. And, and I was very fortunate, even though I didn't know, to actually go through the process of working out how to get from this total mess of I'm never going to be able to stop Maradona to actually going out there in the Sydney Football Stadium tunnel thinking, you know what, I don't know whether I can stop you, Diego, but I can't prove that I can't, if that makes sense. Yeah. So uh, I, can, I do all of that. Uh, cognitive behavioural therapy. I looked it up and I read and I studied and it fits, it really does. So I, I take it on board for myself and I share those stories with everybody else. So uh, uh, again, very lucky to do so as well as some other uh, exciting and wonderful stories in my football career. Yeah, and, and no doubt the, the highlight of that would be um, coaching the great uh, Norman Hurst FC, which I've got the colours on today to uh, to dig <laughs> one out of the cupboard. <laughs> um, yeah, many great times. So I, I think... The Maradona story is a powerful one because it's it is like it's a, an example for us as a footballing nation as well, right? How we suddenly had to look at ourselves in a different way, playing in that space to be able to to step up, but also for for all of you guys personally to suddenly take on something where even you your own country and the media weren't doesn't by the sound of it weren't giving you much hope. Yeah, it, it was frightening because you feel. You feel on your own, you know, you, uh, 
you're just sitting there. I remember the night before we played them, we went to watch Marconi versus Sydney United out at Marconi Stadium. And I had no idea what the score was. I had no idea who played or what advantages either team had. Uh, I had no idea because I could not get my mind around uh, marking Maradona and the, the huge expectations surrounding it. You know what I did, Hawk, just between me and you? I went to church the night before. <laughs> yeah, and then wow. I thought, because I'm a Catholic, I thought, I'm going to get God on my side, Hawk. That's what I'm going to do. And then I thought, hang on, he's a Catholic as well. Oh, no. So now he's on both of our teams. There's another there's another advantage that was taken away from me. So, uh, but yeah, you don't realise uh, what anxiety is, what stress can do to you until you actually experience it. Yeah, and I think probably this is a good time to, to bring in the other thing that you had to contend with, which... Perhaps at this point in your life, you didn't even know what it was, but you knew that it, it was starting to affect you, right? I think I remember a story you talking about um, that return leg, was it, when you when you feel like you must have had a seizure in the lead-in? Sorry, just that last bit again, you broke up. Sorry, what was that? Just the last bit. Um, was it was it the return yep, leg yep. away in Argentina? Where, yeah, where you had your first well, where you, you recognised as probably you had a, an epileptic seizure. Oh yeah, yeah. You know what we um, we'd been to Europe and we'd um, played against Colo Colo, the Chile champions. So we were totally prepared. For whatever Argentina threw at us, we'd they said, Yeah, we'll look after you as long as you beat Argentina and knock them out. And I thought, Wow, this is great. So it was, I'd rolled my ankle against Colo Colo and I was devastated. I was on a, a treadmill just running along. And Eddie Thompson, God bless him, he's no longer with us, he walked into the room. I, I, as I say, I rolled my ankle. I thought, Shut up, do not tell him that you are in. In unbelievable pain right now. You, um, you just keep running through. It's like running on glass. I've torn my ankle ligaments and I've never felt so much pain in my life, but there was no way in the world I was going to let him know I was hurt. So then I'm talking to the physiotherapist after that and I collapsed right in front of him. And that's the first time anyone ever thought, well, we got a real problem here. As soon as you get back to Australia, mate, you go and see a neurologist. So that was the first time, yeah, that was the first time that anyone actually uh, recognised it as uh, as a brain disorder. We still didn't know what it was, yeah. but, um, yeah, I'd been experiencing it for 30 seconds for years and years and years, and I didn't tell anyone, especially the guys at Normanhurst, and then I got caught there as well, right? You did, and it's one of those memories for me, and I'm sure everyone that was there that night that's etched in the memory, where mid-sentence you just uh, started repeating the same sort of, I don't think it was a full word, the same sort of sound uh, over and over again, and we were all looking at each other, young men just going, what the f is going on here? Um, but you said your memory of that yeah. was like that part didn't happen. You just suddenly realised everyone was looking at you with strange looks and, and you didn't know what was going on. But then you recognised that, that that's what it was. Yeah, yeah. You were uh, 
you're quite right. You don't realize what's happening to you. I mean, I, I remember feeling an aura uh, before you actually have a seizure. And seizures come in many, many, many different ways. What happened with uh, you and me, the boys at Normo, was I, I had an absence where I completely, uh, you know, obviously what I, did I stumble? Did I, re did you say I repeated myself? But I yeah. came out and you're all staring at me and I remember looking directly at you and the look on your face, I'll never forget it. I still didn't know what had happened, but uh, yeah, I looked at you first because you were standing right in front and then I looked around and thought, what the, um, I don't know what happened after that. Did you come and say good day? I don't know, but yeah, sprung, um, sprung on the uh, the normal boys. Yeah, so so what happened then was uh, well, so Donnie had the presence to actually just go up to you and make sure you were alright, and thankfully it didn't last that long. And uh, at that point, that was when you chose to uh, let us know, you know, what you'd been um, suffering with, and it made a lot of sense for us, right? Because we couldn't work out why you weren't driving, why you didn't come to the pub for a beer, all of those things that you couldn't do because of um, having to deal with epilepsy. Uh, and it, it gave us context. Yeah. Um, and then you also said that at that point you were working, was it on C7, Optus TV, and that people didn't know that, so we had to keep it amongst ourselves. So I guess that was a, um, yeah, I guess we were, honoured, I suppose, to hold that secret. We were honoured just to have you uh, involved with in our club for starters. And, and um, yeah, it was oh, thank a bizarre you. time. Yeah, it was. Um, I remember having that seizure in front of you guys, but you, know, you probably sussed out from that that I wasn't driving. I hadn't been driving for months. Uh, after that seizure I had in uh, just before we played Argentina over there, the first thing the road traffic authority do is give us your license. So that was it. My world had gone from doing whatever I liked to needing every single one of you to help me get around. You know, there were moments where I would love to have told someone because it was embarrassing. I wasn't driving anywhere, but I wasn't going to tell you because I feared discrimination. I feared it was embarrassing. There was wow all these sorts of questions came into my mind um yeah again funny what you do uh, to protect yourself so i put up with all these uh, comments for months and months and then um yeah it was i'm glad i'm glad you know what hawk i'm glad i actually had the seizure on c7 sport channel 7 it was live at the mcg because it took away i had no choice but to tell everybody and it was such a weight off my shoulders. Yeah, Unbelievable. Wow. Yeah. And um, I, I can't comprehend what that must have been like because I know when when we do any work on ourselves or when I'm coaching, when people tell me about something they and they say, oh, I've never told anyone, but you can just, you can sense it, you can feel it, they feel it, the relief, and that's just one person. But you basically then told the whole country this secret that you'd been carrying for so long. That must have just been almost euphoric, was it? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the great thing was uh, Mike Cockrell, again, God bless him, he's gone too, um, he said to me, because we'd got on well, we were commentators on C7 Sport doing all the NSL, and yep. uh, he said to me, he said, you know what, I want to write a story about your epilepsy and, and how you've had to deal with it because 
all the speculation will start, people will start making things up, people will start reading different things into it, and it'll get out of control. So why don't I write the facts? And I thought, wow, another moment where because somebody had empathy, understood, couldn't solve my problem, but understood, and again, took all that weight of uh, expectation off my shoulders. You know the other good thing, Hawk, you know, after I had that seizure on Channel 7, the director said, we think you've had a seizure. We're not sure, but that's what it looks like. Um, uh, but don't worry, if you'd have told us, you idiot, we could have cut to a shot of the crowd. We could have gone to a commercial break. We could do all sorts of things to help you out. So for years, Hawk, I'd, I'd hidden this thing and all I had to do was tell someone. It's a male thing, don't you reckon? Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And I've had this conversation a lot this week. We, we feel like we're less or weak or something if we ask for help but actually it's the greatest show of strength to do so. So I know that that is a lesson that you've learned because I know these are conversations we've had in the last sort of six months, right? At a time where I was also reaching help, for help, help in my network, you, you reached out for help in your network. And of course, the same reaction, right? People are like, oh, so good to hear from you. How can I help? And we kind of lose sight of, of like what people's reaction will be. So uh, that's probably a good time for you to share. Like, over the last sort of three to to six months for you, what have what have you learned from from actually having that courage as a man to actually reach out to your network and say I need some help in a few different areas? I think that's the first step. You've actually got to make a choice, make a decision to actually make it happen yourself. Um, don't feel sorry for yourself. Don't think that nobody cares. Don't think that nobody else understands. People understand. And especially in this day and age where the, the, the level of expectation for some of us is so great that we do stupid things. And you know what the ultimate uh, thing you can do is, and there are so many people doing it, and they're mostly men. And you just, you've probably heard it a thousand times. Just go and ask somebody or tell somebody and they yeah. won't be able to solve your problem right then and there. But if they know about it, they might know somebody who does, which is why I reached out to you and said, Hawk, have you got any, um, if you keep your ear to the ground, if you see any opportunities, because remember we had that coffee at Norman Hurst yeah. and we just got yeah. chatting away. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and from that, yeah, you put me in touch with um, uh, my memory's gone. Um, and who is it? Come on, Hawk, you know who. Yeah, yeah, creating chances. And yes. from that, from that, uh, I've now got a connection where what I do fits in with what they do. Now, I'm never going to be a multi multi millionaire, but I've got a sense of self worth now because somebody sees what I do that fits with what they do, and bingo, I leave every morning to go to work. And that's important, don't you yeah. think? That's oh. so important for your self-esteem, just the fact that you know you're going to work. 100%, that, that sense of purpose. And I think also like knowing you and, and what you described there, how you and what you do was so aligned to creating chances, also finding something 
to throw yourself into that's perfect for who you are, your own journey. And I think having spoken to Brad from Creating Chances, um, he knows the impact that you'll be able to have there using your background and profile and, and all the skills you've developed over time. So um, I'm really excited to see where that leads, Waiting. Mm, I've, the, and again, it, it happens to everyone. You know, there comes a time in your life where the, businesses are always looking for younger people who can probably last longer. And we know for a fact that people doesn't matter how old you are, you're not going to keep that or whatever. And they have a rundown of the jobs they've done. There aren't too many people who go over 40 years now um, before they get another, either a role or another job. So for me, getting close to uh, 60, 58 years of age, you've got to start thinking, well, you know what, I've got to make a career change. I've been doing it all my life. But to go to an interview now, for me, is frightening. Absolutely frightening because I've been my own boss. I've I've talked to kids and adults and shared stories with them and listened to them, but I've never actually gone in to, to sell myself. So for anybody who's uh, watching or listening, it is a big hurdle, but sometimes you've just got to face it. And I'm not looking forward to uh, doing it. Eventually I will, but for the time being, um, yeah, something I've dealt with. Um, that sounds like another conversation we should have at the cafe then, Wadey, because, uh, yeah, I think a lot of it is that's the problem, isn't it? We get to that stage in our life and we think we can't change directions, often because we think we've put ourselves and other people have put, our, put us into a, a box of, of what we've done up until this point and we think that we're not capable of changing directions, but actually it's working out what is the most you know, the key elements of what you bring to whatever role and those transferable elements that can take you to, to nearly anywhere. Um, I, I think probably your mention of that chat we had is probably a good segue into what something I wanted to mention. And it was um, a, a conversation that you had a realisation and then uh, which allowed me to have a pretty big realisation too. And you were talking about as a youngster, and I think this will really uh, resonate with a lot of the, the parents who are listening who have children. As a youngster, you, you were playing football, thinking about the reaction from your parents, particularly your dad in the car. If you heard nothing on that car ride home, you knew you'd done a good job. But if you knew, <laughs> you knew you'd played bad, you, you were waiting for, uh, for what might come. <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, I laugh about it now, but um, I don't know. Thirteen, fourteen years of age, and you know when you've played well. And you know you might not have won, but you know when you've played to the best of your ability. I don't need to be told. So sitting in the front seat of the car with my dad driving, I'm just look staring straight ahead, not seeing any traffic, just staring straight ahead, thinking. Here it comes, because he hasn't said anything for the first 30 metres we've left the car park. So it's an awkward silence, and then he, get, then he lets rip. I don't know why you bother. <laughs> and I just thought, oh, that's the one I was expecting. And you know what? I didn't cry. I just accepted as somebody's actually saying, yeah, 
<laughs> in a uh, very nice way. I totally agree with your thoughts that you were crap today. So, but if he said nothing, Hawk, and this yeah. is that generation in the past, isn't it? Never yeah. let them know you're hurt and never tell anyone that you love them. And, and it was just a hard-ass uh, attitude. And I've got it. You know, I hate it. I coached kids last night. Mm. And after, I don't know, well, 10 minutes, they wanted a drink. You, I won't tell you what my reaction was, but <laughs> I'm thinking, you bunch of soft... <laughs> and I said, no, sit down, shut up, and I'm going to put on my next practice, and you'll do it. And if you don't do it right, then I'm going to make you do it again. No, I didn't really, but I thought, you know, we were brought up in, in an era where you just had to suck it up. Yeah, and uh, I'm laughing because all those things that you were talking about, we were all on the receiving end of that when you coached, and uh, and, I, and I remember, like, that that same process, not hearing from you and probably wanting to get something, am I going all right? But if I made a mistake, <laughs> you, you let me know in no uncertain terms. And I'm sure the other normal boys all have some good stories. I'm thinking of one in particular story. A couple of the guys were saying um, that uh, you you run your asses off, you praise them, and then he uh, and then he subbed you both because you said they were running too much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what? I, I always had that mentality of you work your bum off, and if you come off. Um, with a smile or you come off clean that you haven't done your job. But you know what? The, re the, the real interest for me was seeing your reactions at training when I said, right, you lot, get over here, 65-second lap. Ready? You remember that? Yeah. It absolutely. I loved every minute to see you lot jogging back to the finish of that one lap in 65-second laps just enjoying the pain on your face again <laughs> suck it up very good it obviously worked and you knew how to motivate us that's for sure i think um one of, from that conversation you, you were talking about how um you had this realization as we were talking you're like i think I, I used to run around the field like trying to like um you know make sure i was working hard enough because you still had that conversation from your dad playing out and you're saying i don't know if i actually enjoyed playing and when you said that phrase, that kind of smacked me in the face and a realisation that, yeah, I didn't ever really enjoy playing, well, not for a lot of time that I could remember, particularly my later years, not enjoying it because I was just running around making sure I didn't let anyone down. And um, and that's not the right sort of motivation, but that's, that's where I was at. And um, I'm excited to be playing this year and actually having fun and enjoying the game like I don't remember enjoying since I was quite a youngster. So thank you for that, Wayne. <laughs> I'm coming down to watch you because your idea of fun might be standing in that centre circle and not moving. And if I'm playing alongside you in the middle of the park, I am not going to be very pleasant to you at all. So I just might pop down this weekend and uh, give you an appraisal. I look forward to it, or not. So <laughs> let's um, let's touch back on on the uh, sporting journey. Or oh, actually, I've got I have to mention this one first. Yeah. So this is something when when I was speaking to my brother when when you first came and coached us, and I mentioned it, and he was really excited, and he referenced a uh, a magic moment on Hey Hey at Saturday where. Uh, 
you they had uh, Wilbur had a big target on his on his face, and from the other awesome. side of the studio, you had to try and hit this target, and and you hit it square on, and uh, and his nose bled, and we used to talk about man, like how good are that they can do that, and when I relayed that message to you, you said that was just the biggest <laughs> bit of luck ever. <laughs> Oh, geez. It, yeah, it was Hey Hey Saturday. And, and you know what? Football was, a, it was a, a poor cousin to every other sport. So when Daryl Summers said, look, we've got Wilbur over here, he had a gridiron helmet on. You know the American gridiron helmets? He's got that on. So there's a bar right across the front of his face. And he yeah. was holding a, a steel rubbish bin. A steel rubbish bin. And he's, what, three four yards away from me and I thought how can the game get publicity I know I'm just gonna absolutely smash this thing into that rubbish bin well you if you've ever seen me play I couldn't hit the side of a house with a brick so there was no chance I was going to get that ball into that bin so I just smashed it it went up into the bar on the cross of the of his gridiron helmet that through, went back through his bottom lip and there was blood everywhere. And uh, Daryl Summers goes, oh, yeah, the old blood tablet. Yes, we got that. Well, the short story is when I got off air, all I hear coming out of his dressing room is, that thing of bloody pages with a bloody Wow. I really did hurt him. And he's <laughs> isn't he a saxophone player? He needs his lip, mate. He needs his lip. And I've just smashed it. Fantastic. <laughs> oh, very good. Sometimes you just get lucky, right? <laughs> yes. Now, yes. I was never allowed on Hey Hey It's Saturday again. I bet. Typical of you, you, you downplay the ability because there's that there's highlights of the um of the soccer's four one victory over Argentina in the bicentennial cup in um, eighty eight, and I remember it well because uh, my mum who's listening actually took us to the um Saudi Arabia game which was also a, a thumping win. But the, one of the goals it might have been Farina's back post um, that was you uh, pinpoint cross from the corner straight on his head. So you must have done something right. Yeah, I'll tell you what. I uh, It was on the side that Eddie Thompson was on, uh, the coach, and I'm down the right-hand side, and I cut back towards the halfway line to hit it with my left, and I quite clearly remember Tomo going, Wayne, not your left foot. Please do not use your left foot in his Scottish accent. Yeah. And I just thought, I can't stop now. I'm halfway through swinging my left foot. So I just belted it, and it landed right on the head of Vlado Bozanovsky. Oh, uh, I think it hit yeah. his shoulder. and he's, Yeah, it hit his shoulder and his ear and went over the goalkeeper into the back of the net. Uh, I, I won't tell you what I did, uh, but uh, the, uh, the glare that Tomo got after that cross... I should have gone over to him and shown him my left foot. What a cracking cross that was. Unbelievable. Fantastic. So uh, I think really um, it'd be really cool to, to talk about that journey from when you were young because you talked about, like, even though, like, what your, your stats that show 
how many times you played for your country and and all those NSL games, you were saying that through your youth, you, you didn't, you never really stood out massively, and and you were quite late to making that elite level. Yeah, I didn't play for anybody, represent anyone till I was twenty three. I was more than happy just to play. I didn't even know the Socceroos existed. I came out here in 73, so there was no chance I was going to be um, right into the Socceroos because that was so far. And in fact, when I think back, I don't think I even knew there was a Socceroos, even though I knew there was a World Cup. So for me, the most important thing was that training session and that game and that season. And I didn't, it didn't matter whether we were getting smashed every week or whatever, as long as I was my best on that day. Yeah, I had dreams of playing for Liverpool. Um, and, and maybe that's why I never did, but maybe that's why I kept going. All these kids nowadays, mate, you've got to be in the SAP program. You've got to be on a career path or you're going to get missed. Geez, I'm glad they didn't say that to me, Hawk. You know, things were different back then, I must admit. But, um, yeah, 23 was the first time anyone said, uh, yeah, you're good enough. And you know what? That was only because a guy called Kenny Murphy, who played in the middle of the park for the Socceroos in 86, got hurt. And he went off with a knee injury and I went on and I'm fortunate enough to play for the next 10 years. But I had to work hard to be there for that moment. But if I hadn't have got picked, it wouldn't have worried me. Yeah, wow. Amazing. So do you, can you remember, like you said that the focus was just training and game day. Can you remember any of the yeah. ways that you used to motivate yourself or to, to get yourself up for games? Yeah, I can. There are so many ways you can motivate yourself because if, if you think about it, Paul, the, your motive is your reason. The reason you do something is what drives you. And I had so many different ways of uh, wanting to be my best, needing to be my best. Fear is a is a motivator. If you don't play well, Hawk, you're coming off. If you don't play well, you're not playing next week. What are you going to do? You are going to give so much more that you didn't think you had. It's the worst kind of motivation, obviously, fear. Yeah. But it is a fact. You know, if all of a sudden you can't find a job and you can't afford to pay the mortgage, you are going to go out and you are going to try harder than you've ever done before. You're going to make up jobs. So for me, I uh, fear was one, but hearing the crowd, um, you know, roar when all those normal boys on the bench, you know, and we're all going nuts when you score, that must have made you feel really good. And it because you feel good, you want to do it again. There's your reason to go. Not that you did score many, but you at least tried, and we love that about you. Um, <laughs> no, but honestly, it, um, uh, hearing from a teammate, Hawk, well done. For me to hear from you, well done, lifted me so much. That's the easiest. Money. You know, if, if we won, we got paid a lot more than if we lost. I need yeah. the money. I'm going to try harder. Yeah, there are so many ways, and I happen to find a different way or sometimes the same way. Um, every single time. I mean, the best one is wanting to be your best. That is the easiest one. I just want to be my best today. I love that. And that's probably a good segue 
segue into the work that you're doing now because I know you're doing some pretty amazing work. Yes, with with some adults and you do some corporate gigs, but probably the bit that that I know lights you up the most is is being able to make a positive impact for the young people in Australia, particularly those perhaps that that are disadvantaged, uh, the refugee programs and all of those people that you you know you can impact by by giving them that sort of belief and and helping them to be their best. So maybe uh, sh- share with us, Wadey, some of those some of the work that you do and how you actually like some of the tools and, and processes you use to create that impact in that environment. Mm, I talked to, uh, it started off with me finding the shirts in the cupboard one day. I, I use those as props to tell stories. So the, the kids are not just listening to words. Unfortunately, like you are today, I've got lots of shirts that I show them, Maradona's playing against England, Brazil, all that. And, and I found them in the cupboard and then a careers advisor said, well, why don't you tell those stories? Because they fit employability skills and personal attributes. So I did that. And then somebody else saw it and said, well, that fits with disengaged, at risk, refugees. Uh, it fits with all of that too. So then I started working in that area. It's funny how things work out, isn't it? You start off with one idea and I'm talking to careers advisors all the time and they're talking about sending kids to university, sending them to TAFE, but what is, it's not ignored, but it's not got a high profile, is what about entrepreneurship? What about these young people who have an idea that they can work on and take it to a whole new level? Now, I was a draftsman for 13 years, but I think maybe I could be filed under entrepreneur because what I've, what I've done with those shirts. So yeah, every story, I know it's a simple thing, but I never, I only went to year 11. I didn't go to HSC in university. I wasn't, I was as thick as two short planks, but I, I just had just, just that one little thing that somebody thought that works. So I'm very lucky to tell these stories, but I, uh, again, you just gotta be working hard in the right time right place uh, to make it all happen yeah absolutely and uh you just reminded me because given we can't actually see you at the moment i should dig out while you're chatting which i was trying to just do now is uh the pictures that you did send me so while i ask you another question i'm going to keep looking for those because yeah. i think there'll be some really cool visuals there um so yeah yeah if you think about all of those shirts that you've gathered from playing against different people and from also from, you know, different experiences, commentating and so on. Um, could you relay another story for us around one of those shirts and the and the story that you tell people that's attached to that shirt? Yeah. Uh, well, there are four stories. There are. There's the. Uh, epilepsy story where from where I had my first seizure to where I had part of my brain removed. There's a Maradona story dealing with stress and anxiety. Uh, there's a Uruguay story. Remember we qualified for the 2006 World Cup and all the planning and organizing and self-management and um, initiative and problem solving. Um, that's with the Uruguay one. But I've got one with, uh, when I played against Canada. It's probably the most traumatic um, experience and people might think well you know you only 
You got, you got dropped for two games. Who cares? Big deal. But right then, right there, football was my life. Do you know what I mean? And yeah, I yeah. was married. We had three gorgeous girls. Yeah. But when your world comes crashing down, it might seem um, trivial to somebody else, but it's not. It is not at all. So that story, very quickly, go with me on this. There are four rooms in life, right? Contentment, denial, confusion, renewal, right? So my story is in the room of contentment, I put it in, I put them in rooms because you can actually see yourself working through a process. Contentment is you don't have to choose because everything's going on all right. You know, well, how... We don't realize how content we are until it all goes wrong. So yeah. I'm in that room. I played 88 times for the Socceroos. I was always going to play. You know, uh, you don't realize how much you've taken your foot off the pedal. Well, wrong. In two games against Canada, World Cup qualifiers, 1993, Eddie Thompson dropped me. And, and that was it. Didn't tell me why. It just dropped me. So yeah, I've wow. gone, the first thing that the journalists do... First thing the journalists do is they say, right, Paul, what do you think of Tomo? Now, at that moment, in that room of denial where I was so angry, Hawk, if I'd have given that journalist everything he wanted, I might never have played for Australia again. So I'm in this room, I'm really mad and angry and nobody knew and, and wow, I'm in total chaos. Now, fortunately for me, maybe it's my upbringing, I was in the third room then, confusion rather than keep spitting the dummy and arguing and and pleading my defense i thought right he's dropped me now i've got to get back into this team what am i going to do and i tried all sorts of things but the one thing that worked i went to raul blanco the assistant coach and i said raul what am i doing wrong he's dropped me he's not told me why i know he's trying to kick my backside but there must be something else that i've done or can do to get that shirt back. And he said, yep, all you got to do is know where you're going to pass it before you get it. So have a look, scan around. What are you going to do before you get the ball? And I thought, hang on a minute. I've spent all my career running around like an idiot, working harder and harder and harder. And all I had to do was work a bit smarter. And from that, I just concentrated between that, um, the two games we played against Canada, just concentrating on having a look what I was going to do with it before I got it. I got the last 20 minutes of the game against Canada over here when Mark Schwartz had made those penalty saves. Yeah. And uh, I did all right. I had a look at it the other day. I did all right. I didn't set the world on fire. I only had 20 minutes. But the one thing I look back at now, Hawk, Tom, we hadn't even practiced penalties. So when Tomo said, who's taken the first one, I went, me, I'm taking it, right? Because I was the first captain ever dropped from the national team. I had probably had every right to go and take up the fetal position in the corner. But I don't know why I said, me. And I, it was the longest walk ever from that half way line to that penalty. But I think, wow. And, and from then on, I got, my, uh, I got my shirt back. 
and I played against um, Argentina in the next game. So then I was back in the room of renewal. Oh, I never left that room. Don't you worry about that. So just to recap, contentment, you don't have to choose. Denial, you refuse to choose. Confusion, you don't know what to choose. And renewal, you choose and you set goals and you revisit those goals. So, yeah, it was, again, another life lesson. Yeah, I love that. Uh, Fiona, yes, we know the guest screen is blank, black. Uh, unfortunately, some uh, technical issues. So rather than um, try and make that work, we're working off the audio. So, But thank you for letting us know that. Um, that's amazing, lady. And it's like staggering that that's where football was, that no one had ever told you that until you're 80 games into a, into a uh, career for, you, for playing for your country. That's staggering. Yeah, yeah. And, and you look at people today who are employed and have been for however many years and all of a sudden the GFC hits, the pandemic hits and all of a sudden they've gone from I've got a job for life to I don't know what I'm going to do. I have no other training than what I'm doing now. And that is the room of content or the room of denial. If some people go, well, that sucks. I hate the pandemic. I hate the boss because he's not giving me any training. You blame everybody else. But yeah, you're right. 88 games, playing every one of them until somebody told me you're not good enough. Ouch. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, man. So, so much to that. So, the the epilepsy thing, right? And you mentioned you referenced it there. So yeah. you got to a point where take me on that journey. When did they have any treatment plans or at that point? Because I know you you had surgery, which in itself, which was massively invasive, and you did send me some pictures, which um, I'm glad I can't actually find the uh, I can't find the PowerPoint that you sent me because I, in case I accidentally put that yeah. shot up. But it was it was pretty intense. So how did you go yeah. from okay, I'm having these seizures to all right, there's actually something we can do, um, and, then, and then the aftermath from that because I know that was full of problems as well, right? Yeah, yeah, it was. I uh, I mean, it's a big decision to make, isn't it? You've got a, a family, three young girls. I um, I was having five seizures a day, tonic clonic seizures where you fall down, split your head open. If you need to go to the toilet, that's where you go when you're having a tonic-clonic seizure. So for me, my life was just health, not just for me but for my whole family, you know, not driving. Sitting in the passenger seat when you're driving with your wife is not a very pleasant thing to do just quietly. I know that sounds sexist, but it's frightening. I'm telling her, stay away from the curb, Val. Val, move over. You're getting too close to the curb. So it, it was just a, for me, it was, it was, don't you dare tell her that I've just said that, by the way. I swear I'll have you killed if you do. Um, you and so I, I. I just and, basically thought, I, yeah. You and I and Val know that you'd be completely lost without her in your life, right? <laughs> yes, exactly right. Can you imagine we've decided, yes, I need my, uh, this operation. Uh, but, um, yeah, the hero in all of this, Hawk, and again, it's that support around you when you're having some horrible times. She's the hero in all of this. I'm lying in a, 
in a bed in Westmead Private Hospital with a big fat Cuban cigar being looked after um, on drugs so that I feel happy. I had, I had nothing to worry about. I was the victim. But Val was the one who had to look after the three girls and worry about uh, uh, being left um, because her husband's died. And then the bank manager goes, well, hang on a minute. You've not paid your mortgage. Uh, we're going to repossess the house. So she yeah, well. then got to go to the bank and say, look, we can't afford these repayments on her own. Now, that just blows my mind that how she kept it all together with all those things on her plate. And people say, yeah, but people do that all the time. Well, they might. But when it happens to you for the first time, it's frightening. So yeah. for her to do that, uh, I had three operations in the end, one to take the brain, one to take the infected bone, and the third one to put the steel plate in over the hole in my head. So uh, the biggest problem now with that um, part of my brain missing, my front temporal lobe, is that my ability to concentrate and my short-term memory are shot to pieces. I have uh, no idea where, what I've done 30 seconds ago. Um, but the great thing about, and I've shared this with you before, Hawk, the great thing about having short-term memory loss, I get to hide my own Easter eggs. <laughs> Well, the, the benefit for me is that um, I can tell you the same story four times and you just don't remember. So, <laughs> Yes. So, yes, so I, I heard that you threw your own surprise party. You're that bad. <laughs> yes, exactly. No, not as bad as you, though, mate. So, so what have you done to, to develop the skills to cope with that, apart from having Val there to mop up after you? How do you make sure that you remember what you need to remember? <laughs> And that, and 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 maybe talk us through some of those those things that you've learnt, and and how you're able to create memories in a different way by basically rewiring your brain. Yeah, I've the first thing you do, uh, no matter whether you're in control or you're not, and a lot of people don't do it, is get a diary, get a diary and write everything down. Uh, because it gives you a purpose. It gives you, even if it's just, I'm going to go and do coffee with Hawk at Thornley Maccas, write it down. And when you've done it, get a big fat texter and go tick. Because again, you've written it down, you've got a goal and you've achieved that goal. So that, that's one thing I've always remembered because of my short-term memory loss, because of my ability to concentrate, I have to write everything down because, and I've lost money because I didn't, I forgot and I didn't go to a job, so I didn't get paid. And it, it just brings you to the edge sometimes. So that's one thing I've learned. If you can have a goal in your diary and you achieve it, the biggest thing is you get that texter and you go tick. Big and bold and black and you feel good, you know. That's the probably one thing I will, and a lot of people say, oh, no, I've, I'll, I always remember. Yeah, well, you'll remember, but will you feel good when you've achieved that goal? That's the key. Yeah, 
hundred percent. It absolutely is. And it's attaching emotion to, to goals that we set for the future, as well as when we achieve them that are, that are so powerful. I think you described it before um, when you were talking about football and when someone gives you praise for something, it feels good. So there's a desire to do more of that. And I think what you described then is, is not I think, I know it's such a powerful tool because when we know why we're doing anything, when we know the emotional connection to it, when we realise that when I do this, when I've done this in the past, then it's going to feel good. When we start setting targets that we don't know, we haven't done before, but we imagine how good it's going to feel, that's what drags us forward, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I, I empower young people, believe it or not. I tell them my stories, but the, the story of finding a reason, having a motive for doing something is how powerful because kids think oh well i can't motivate motivate anyone because i'm a kid or i'm a young person or whatever i say all you got to do when you're walking out of class is go thanks miss i really appreciated that how good does that teacher feel knowing that all that research all that time she spent with those lesson plans and somebody walks out and says thanks miss really appreciated that or thanks for your help or it, it empowerment it if people realized how uh, powerful they could be uh, they do it more often they'd realize that it is important to thank people to say g'day to make people smile walking down the street just say g'day to them you look at the shocked look on their face hawk when they walk past you going the guy's on drugs why did you say that? Yeah, yeah, that's it's madness, isn't it? It's it's a, such a such a simple idea, but you're right. So many people are surprised, or they're they're like, "Oh, what's what are they up to?" But it also has such a positive impact. And you, if you come across someone who's yeah. not in that state, and and you give just maybe just a smile, it, yeah, it lifts their whole day. Yeah, it's amazing. You do it today. Anyone who's listening, do it today. When you walk past someone, you don't have to have a conversation with them. Just walk past them and say good day. And they are totally shocked. And because most people coming the other way, walking past someone, oh, look at that uh, cloud up there, or look at that lovely tree. They'll find every reason in the world not to look at you and say good day. It's a, it's a sad world we live in at times, isn't it? That's why we're going to make a difference. We are going to start saying good day to someone and keep walking. 100%. Well said, Wadey. Uh, the human element, this is a comment from Isan. Um, the human element in sport is key, applies to all aspects of life. Knowing why and having a motive, as Wadey says, is important. Ultimately, it makes... It makes us feel better as people. Uh, purposeful emotion equals positive emotion. And I think that you've nailed that, Isan, and that's what you were just alluding to there, Wadey. We're going to make a difference. And for you, you know that making a difference, whether it's a smile or the work that you're doing with young people, then, then that gives you a purpose, a sense of purpose, a reason for being that just gives you so much strength and power to keep going when, when things do get tough. Yeah, you know, my daughter's gone to Liverpool Girls High School. She's a, um, a social worker. She's just coming to the end of her degree. And what they've done 
is they've put her in a class of students who are girls who are really struggling. And honestly, if you knew what hell they're going through, you'd just shake your head. And what she's there to do is to just be a friend, be some sounding board, not somebody up the front with a big stick, not somebody telling them that if you don't have your assignment done by that time, this will happen, but just, just listen to what they've got to say. Don't agree with them. Don't encourage them to go and do it if they're, you know, if it's wrong, but just so that this, and, you know, again, a simple thing was one of the girls in the groups that she was with loves, oh, I can't remember, uh, imagine a, a program on TV. Maybe it's Home and Away. She loves Home and Away. It, it wasn't, but just imagine that it was. Well, my yep. daughter loves Home and Away, and there's the simple connection. So then the teacher went, I've never had anyone be able to connect with this girl. So what the teacher did was, I'm going to get this girl to do an assignment on Home and Away. Now, how, how simple is that? How effective is that? I don't know what will happen as a consequence, but you've made a connection with a girl you couldn't even get to school before. Yeah, amazing. And, and often it can be that simple. Um, more feedback from Isan. He's saying, love the chat, infectious positivity. Uh, cheers, Isan. Appreciate it, mate. I know this uh, is work that you're passionate about as well too, brother, so cheers for sharing that. Um, that reminds me, Wadey, of uh, I think I've referenced this previously on these chats. I, I went and um, visited a, a charity that Fox Sports was working with at the time. I'm pretty sure they still are. Uh, Clontarf Foundation, and I spoke to the founder, Jared Neesham. He, he coached at uh, Frio in the AFL for a while, but he talked about when when he after he'd finished his coaching, he went and helped out at a school, and they had a high Indigenous population. Yeah. And he said that he had this realization that okay, he showed up. Suddenly, they've all showed up to school because Jared Neesham from Fremantle was coming to to take some of the football. And he realized he was onto something and he just said to them, I will coach you at the end of this term if your attendance is at 80%, because that was the biggest problem in the area. So what do you reckon happened, right? All of those kids who weren't necessarily getting to school because of all the different challenges in that particular part of WA, they suddenly started coming to school. And that next term, he coached them and yeah. they... And they were like they flew, and he went. I'm actually onto something, and so now he's created this academy for Indigenous boys all over the country, where he's literally getting that same level of attendance, eighty to ninety percent. And this foundation then takes them and gets them work, and then they literally closing the gap for for an Indigenous um, young fellow growing up. And it's like just simplicity. You come to school, you get to play footy with us yeah 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 well you you look at what motivates us all these people listening who might be at work what why do you go to work you go what motivates you is you want money and you want to get away from the husband and you want to there are so many reasons so what reason are we telling kids to go to school they want to play on their bikes and play netball and football and 
that we've given them a reason with this guy turning up for school. It, sometimes I think uh, we don't want to pay kids for going to school, but we've got to give them a good reason, and that was a really good reason. Yeah, hundred percent. Wayne, Isan's got a question for you. Isan works in uh, junior player development. Um, his his uh, coaching academy T Three Australia. They're doing some fantastic work. I'm very much on board with uh, their way of operating. He wants to know your thoughts on uh, young player development for young children. Uh, he said, an example of a child of age nine to ten. Um, they, they tell their parent they want to be professional footballer. How does that parent manage this passion when they're at only that age of nine or ten? Hang on, just um, one more time. I uh, he just broke up. My most humble apologies. Um, All good. He, he, he had a question around um, young player development. So, for example, a child of, say, nine or ten, they've told their parent they want to be a professional yeah, footballer. Yeah. How does a parent manage this passion at that such a young age? Yep. You put them in a, a uh, an environment where they still want to, because you know what, Elsan, the the only way they're going to make it, uh, the only way they're going to realise their potential is if they're still playing. So no matter what you want or what you think or what you know, the only way they're going to make it is if they're still playing and they want to. So the most important thing I say to, to, to parents is, as my mum and dad did, take them to training, take them to games, but stand on the other side of the ground and shut up. Yeah. You've had them uh, before the game, after the game, half time, uh, during the week, two training sessions, shut up and let them play. You know what I mean? Create yeah. an atmosphere where they can go out and, and enjoy themselves. And if you're, Elsan, if you're a coach, I don't want to hear a word from you. I would find you if you were in my club shouting at kids. I would find you and then I'd, with that money, I'd go and buy you a piece of paper and a pencil. I'd say, write down everything that you wanted to shout and then work on it at training on Tuesday. Training, a planned game has got to be a reward, not a punishment. I tell you what, I'm, um, it winds me up. It winds me up with parents and coaches today. Shut up and let them play. Yeah, and I remember you telling me a story, uh, two uh, clubs that shall remain nameless where there's a fairly heated rivalry and you said they at a junior game and the, the craziness going on in the crowd in this game and you ended up, calling them in at halftime, all the parents, and pretty much delivering that same message and just letting them play. And the impact that had on the on the football out in the field was instant and also like, like profound. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, geez, you've got a good memory. I'll tell you where it was. I was at Football New South Wales. They had a SAP gala day. SAP stands for Skills Acquisition phase or skills acquisition program. program. This was a gala day on the program. Yeah, and it was a, a Croatian versus Serbian uh, rivalry. And the, the key behind SAP is 
four core skills, running with the ball, striking the ball, first touch and one-on-one. And that's all they concentrate on. There is no table, there is no score, and people argue all they like, but it's all about the skill and the technique and the development. Well, all of a sudden, we've got two sets of parents who have an agenda, and they're not standing on the side of the ground. And as soon as one parent shouts something, the other parents shout something. And before you know it, the kids are hearing this and they were kicking the ball up the other end of the park. They were going over the top in tackles. They're 12 years of age, so they have that ability to hurt each other. They're starting not to bounce at 12 and 13 years of age. So, oh, boy, was I mad. Oh, I tell you what. Um, half time came. I said, right, you lot, get over here right now. <laughs> and I, I stood them there in the middle of the park. And I just said to them, can you hear what your parents are saying? They're an absolute disgrace. I want you to prove to your parents that you can compete playing football, not thinking about what war was fought in what year. Anyway, they um, fortunately, uh, for my uh, myself, my uh, men- core mental m- mentality, I just, they played football. And I just wanted to shoot all the, uh, the parents, get them all, line them up. I shouldn't say that, but that's how I felt. We know what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so Isan uh, liked that answer. And uh, I know a lot of the work that his um, academy does is exactly along those lines is to help them get competency because when a child is competent in anything, then they absolutely want to keep playing. And, and in an environment that's encouraging, it allows them to develop those skills. It allows them to keep improving. But most importantly, which is what you said, is you you want them to turn up the next year. And and I'm a massive believer in that. That should be the primary and almost the, well, not the only goal, but it's definitely the primary goal is that your first goal should be that those players that you're coaching turn up next year. And if they're not because of some yeah, other area that you're focused on, Go. Yeah, that's that's basically it. You've just got to want them to want to train three nights a week instead of two. They've got to be looking forward to that game so much that kicking the ball up the other end, I've waited seven days and you're asking me to kick the ball up the other end. Mate, I want to manipulate this ball. I want to nutmeg you, Hawk. I'm going to nutmeg you because I've been waiting for seven days to do this. And when I do, I'm going to turn round, put my thumb on my nose, wiggle my fingers and go, got you. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that, again, that's, that's Isan's, Isan's mantra too, is we want them to, to be able to, to manipulate that ball as, as a skill that allows them to develop as footballers and also as people. So I love that. Uh, way before... I uh, bid you farewell. I, I, you mentioned it before, 2006. Uh, it was such an impactful night that night in 2005 when we qualified. What, what did that mean for you, given that you'd been part of so many of those campaigns that ended in heartbreak? Yeah, I, I again, I, I think I said about the uh, Uruguay game and and the amount of planning and organising that went on for that. And then I look at what we went through 
You know, there was a time where we flew from, we were playing against Uruguay, and then we were going to play against Argentina, right? So this is what we did. We got off the flight in Uruguay, and it was, it was, um, the, there was fog. So we were going to go and fly to, um, I think it was to Argentina, but we went via New York. We went from Uruguay in, the, in South America all the way up to the top right-hand corner in America, New York, and then all the way back over Uruguay to Argentina, something like that. That's Man. the sort of thing we had to do. And somebody said, oh, because it's cheaper doing it that way. I'm thinking you're kidding me. But we were, we were just happy to play for our country. We didn't realise how much um, wasn't being done for us. So when I look at that Uruguay game and that preparation to be in camp for 10 days in Argentina before you go to Uruguay, to have 15 rows of seats in the aeroplane taken out so you got you can have chefs on board rub down tables you know you just think goose hitting walked in there knowing full well what it takes to make it and he demanded that the players are looked after uh, they got on a flight when they got off in uruguay they got on a bus didn't go through customs straight hotel oh jeez unheard of Unheard of before then, but goose hitting made yeah. it happen. He did. So, so what about emotionally for you? Like, was it like, like what what was it like when when we actually did go through? Like, was it a was it as big a relief as for the fan, or was it was it more you were thinking about like your own journey? What what was it like? Yeah, I was thinking about all those times that uh, remember we got uh, we drew with Iran two all. Oh, we yeah. got beat by uh, Israel 1-0. Yeah, we got beat by Israel 1-0. And then Frank Harrop was saying that, yeah, you've, you've only played 89 minutes. We've got another minute to go. Why are you not giving it? We made every excuse in the world. Got beat by Argentina. Got beat by Scotland. And that last penalty, John Aloisi took, I remember I was where... I was at the other end of the ground, not as far as you were, but I remember looking at uh, John... And then just glancing over to the crowd and there were four or five people looking the other way. We could not miss this. Sure. And people couldn't watch. They could not yeah. watch because we've seen it so many times. And when it hit the back of the net, I thought um, all those people who are no longer with us that tried and, uh, and the, all the problems that the game faces uh, and it was all ended right at that moment. Well, it hadn't. We're still suffering some of those issues, but at least for, for that however many weeks between that qualifier and that World Cup game against uh, Italy, um, we were on top of the world. Yeah, well said. It was particularly emotional. And, and for me, it was 2005. My dad had passed away earlier that year, so it was particularly emotional. But but from being a supporter of lots of different teams, uh, without mentioning uh, other disappointments, that, that having been through so many of those, that it was, it was, it was like a, almost like a, um, a release of, of all that pain. So, yeah, you described that well, Wadey. Uh, also... Um, Probably just to, to finish off, as you, 
the, the actual World Cup 2006 and we ventured into the casino to watch the games there and incredible atmosphere considering we, we were on the other side of the world. And um, one particular moment stands out is when you were doing a live cross to Channel 7, I think, um, and you were looking for some crowd interaction, but little did you know that uh, your old friends from Normo might be floating around the back and um, ready to ambush you as soon as that cross happened. <laughs> yeah, I was having a great time until the live cross. Good <laughs> one, Normo boys. <laughs> yeah, we'd, I think we'd been on stage and we'd been talking before the game and giving our so-called expert analysis and then at half time, and then it was a Japan game, wasn't it? Were we one nil down in the with ten to go? We won three one. Was that the game? Um, it could have been. I think possibly it was the Croatia game after we got through to the next stage. Croatia game, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Two. Well, I think we were two one net down with twenty minutes to go, and Harry Kuehl scored, and two two all meant we went through to the knockout stage, and so happy and. Wait, you come over here, Channel 9, uh, the Today program, we're just about to cross. Yeah, quickly run up to the stage. And then the director says in the ear, do you think you could find a couple of fans with a green and gold scarf? And I just turned around and I saw all these hooligans and I've gone, hey, guys, guys, come over here, bring your scarves with you. And, like, you got closer and closer and I'm thinking, oh, shit, no, no, it's the Normo boys. And I, it, you completely took over the whole segment. Five minutes. Nobody remembers a word of what I said. I spent an hour and a half gaining all this knowledge. And the Normo boys come over the top with their green and gold scarves, acting like hooligans, pulling all sorts of faces, sticking things. I think somebody, I think it Chimpy stuck his finger in my ear. It was just total chaos. And I yes. never got back on Channel 9 again. <laughs> I think you're right, mate. Uh, you're welcome. Because you now look at, you know, your, your life's gone into bigger and better things, right? <laughs> making, a real, making a real difference. Um, Wayne, Absolutely. Thank, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate uh, you being patient as we work through the technical issues. I'm glad, despite the fact we can't see your pretty face and, uh, and, and the wonderful backdrop that you'd set up with all your flags and, and shirts with all those stories. Um, I appreciate your time and sharing so openly. Thanks so much, mate. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Can I leave you with a dad joke, please? Go. Can I? Yeah, why not? Go. Can I? Yeah. All right. Here we go. Uh, somebody complimented me on my parking the other day. They put a little note on my windscreen. It said, parking, fine. That's awful, mate. <laughs> what? What? What's wrong with that? Look, yeah, that's a great... At least four go old guys there. Four dads are laughing. I love that. Let's hope so. <laughs> All right, mate, we'll leave it there. Thanks again. I appreciate it, and I will chat to you again very soon. Thanks for those who were here listening live, particularly you, Isan, for the interaction and question. Thanks, buddy. Um, see you next week. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Grief Code podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please share it with a friend or family member that you know would benefit from hearing it too. If you are truly ready to heal your unresolved or unknown grief, 
let's chat. Email me at info at ianhawkinscoaching.com. You can also stay connected with me by joining the Grief Code community at ianhawkinscoaching.com forward slash the grief code. And remember, so that I can help even more people to heal, please subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform.